90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Well, I'm at GSA right now, so I don't know how I am. Yeah, we're having to record this one a tiny bit early because you're going to be at GSA and I'm going to be back from San Francisco, but barely. Exactly. You're on this weird thing called vacation, which I don't think either one of us quite understands. So I'll be interested to see how that worked out for you. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping to squeeze in a few hours of some manuscript here. No. <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> No way you can stop that. <laughs> well, hopefully everyone's super excited to figure out why we're not a giant hard snowball floating in space. Yeah, I mean, after we told you that in five billion years, it's all going to end in flames, <laughs> we presented you with this paradox. <laughs> and we thought that we should resolve that or talk about some ways that we could resolve it. <laughs> right, exactly. So last week we talked about the faint young sung paradox that is not a Chinese food dish. That is an actual problem in science right and i thought that was a song wasn't it oh yes so true <laughs> man just get us off of here <laughs> um so back in the day the sun was 30 percent less luminous than it was now if we had our same atmosphere that we do now and the sun was 30 percent less luminous we would be a hard snowball so why hasn't that happened right so yeah. there are a few ways that we could fix this. One would be that, uh, well, the standard solar model's wrong, and it actually was not that dim. <laughs> you know, I love that, but that's probably not true, right? We've got a really good handle on solar models, especially because our sun is a generic main-sequence star, so we can look at what our sun would have looked like back when it was born, because we see these suns being born now, and so we're probably not wrong about the solar luminosity. Yeah, the sun is not a special snowflake. It is a very, <laughs> very run-of-the-mill star. And we can see the entire sequence when we look out uh, and get very significant results. So that's probably not it. So what else could it be? Right. Um, so the other thing was that, you know, maybe we weren't as shiny as we think we were. Right. By... So this would uh, be called albedo. Exactly. Um, so maybe we had a lower planetary albedo, which means that we would absorb more solar radiation. So albedo is just a measure of reflectivity, right? Um, an albedo of one would mean that the surface is reflecting back all of its incident radiation, solar radiation in this case, that's hitting it. And so land reflects more stuff than water. Water absorbs a lot of stuff and ice reflects everything, right? So albedo right. has a big is a big forcing when we talk about climate yeah and it also presents the problem of well if you've got a lot of ice you're reflecting all of that energy back out into space and you're not really warming right exactly so that's called the ice albedo effect and that has its own whole set of russian climatology equations behind it um <laughs> so that's a problem but you know this one's actually kind of interesting we can't really dismiss it as easily because we did have a different albedo back in the day it's true uh do we know exactly what it was? Not really. But it no. <laughs> probably couldn't be solely responsible. Exactly. I mean, we had a different albedo, mostly because, interestingly enough, we had a lot less continental landmass in the geologic past. So I just said that, 
you know, land is going to reflect a lot more solar radiation back than water is. Water is really good at absorbing it. And three billion years ago, we had 60% of the continental mass that we have today. Yeah. And I mean, water is a huge heat store. Yeah. For the planet. Uh, so that one, yeah, it's probably not the only effect if it had the right sign at all. Um, there is one other possibility, which was that we had very different atmospheric composition, meaning more greenhouse gases. Exactly. So that's the way that we can warm us up is all these climate models that said we were a hard snowball was based on our atmospheric composition now. But four billion years ago, it was probably a lot different. And so this is the one that's really favored in terms of solving the faint young sung paradox. So the atmospheric composition could have been different. And you could say this isn't the Earth's first rodeo with atmospheres. <laughs> exactly. In fact, it's probably our fourth sort of iteration of the atmosphere. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, meteorology would have been fundamentally different three other times in the past. We, oh. we could have mispredicted temperature <laughs> and precipitation three different ways. Oh, not like we do now. Exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, we just would have had like a methane cycle or something weird, like all these other, you know, Jupiter moons or something. Um, but that's that's exactly true. So our first atmosphere was really weird and it happened back when we were still young back when the earth was still differentiating and so we should pause there and <laughs> briefly <Yeah. laughs> talk about what that means <laughs> <laughs> right um so, so was know, the earth doing calculus is that the well obviously <laughs> see this is why it's important to uh, pay attention in class yeah. Um, so we're talking about sort of a density differentiation, right? Because once we were all being formed, all this stuff was spewed out from the sun and the rocky inner planets sat there as these big molten balls and all the heavy stuff fell to the center, right? That's just what happens when you're floating in space. So this is why we've got, you know, a heavy metal core, a hot mantle and a light, relatively light, crispy outer crust. Exactly. So just like pouring, you know, different density fluids in a beaker, they are all mixed together at the beginning, but eventually you get layers and that's what we came up with. So when we're differentiating, we're starting to get this pretty chemically defined mantle and right. it's doing all kinds of stuff like starting to expel some gases as things are getting situated, you could say. And occasionally we would have, you know, a comet impact that would really help some of that mantle gas get out. Right, exactly. So in addition to that mantle gas, the comets also added their own gases. And that's how our first atmosphere formed. So we think the mantles had pretty much the same constituents as it always has been. But these gases that it first started to expel, they were pretty gross. I mean, they were mostly water vapor, CO2, but also some gross stuff like sulfur dioxide and then really bad stuff like hf what hydrofluoric acid yeah. wow so <laughs> yeah <laughs> bad and, news you know you, you just came over water vapor saying well and the, the water vapor was a large one water vapor is the most effective greenhouse gas yeah yeah it is uh lots of people don't really realize that i don't think and yeah. it, it was in copious amounts 
Right. And so you've got water vapor, CO2, SO2, carbon monoxide, hydrochloric acid, hydrofluoric acid, mm-hmm. helium, hydrogen, lots of helium and hydrogen. Yeah. So you just said lots of helium and hydrogen, but I mean, that doesn't even make make it in terms of percentages of Earth's constituent atmosphere today. So where did it go? Why don't we have it anymore? Well, you know, I mean, they didn't get along with our atmosphere and they went away. <laughs> so if you look at the composition of the big gassy planets that we have, um, there's lots of hydrogen and helium there. Jupiter's atmosphere is 86% hydrogen. That's right. a ton. But hydrogen and helium, yeah, they're too active for us. And their their speeds that they race around in are greater than escape velocity. So see you later, guys. Escape velocity. You can't leave home without it. Oh, ouch. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so the cool thing about this is we're still losing hydrogen and helium, and we can measure it. <laughs> right, yeah. So we actually are measuring its losses today, and... You know, that's, we used to have a lot more, but we've never been able to hang on to it. So see you later. That gets scrubbed out of our atmosphere. You know, neither could our neighbors. Venus and Mars also have lost their hydrogen helium. In fact, Mars has lost pretty much all of its atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. It's still got a little bit. It it does. It's what, a tenth or something of ours? Mm -hmm. A tenth of ours. Yeah. And totally different uh, in terms of composition, but that's probably a different show. Exactly. That's something to talk to Mark Watney about. Exactly. <laughs> so our our early atmosphere, though, it also had ammonia and methane in addition to water vapor. And when you're talking about water vapor, CO2, ammonia, and methane, it's going to get toasty. Yeah, that's like the triumvirate of uh, greenhouse gases there, right? Yeah. I mean, ugh, yeah. <laughs> so it's sort of, I mean, the greenhouse effect is the name, right? But solar radiation comes in, but it can't get out. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> we get, we get all of this radiation coming in. Then we get infrared radiation coming back up from the surface of the earth reflected mm-hmm. and re-radiated, but mm-hmm. it gets trapped by these atmospheric gases. And so we get into the cycle where we just get hotter and hotter and hotter like a greenhouse. Exactly. And as you actually increase the amount of these gases in the atmosphere, they can actually absorb radiation over a higher or a a wider spectrum levels. So as you actually increase CO2, it absorbs more and more solar radiation, not just in relation to the amount it's increasing, but it actually absorbs over a larger wavelength. Right. Which is scary. (laughs) Yeah, so you're taking more of the energy out of the incoming radiation. So. Let's see. We've got uh, we've got these gases. We are trapping lots of energy, and you know we're also having this thing called the the late heavy bombardment. So we're we're getting a lot of energy input into our system by giant rocks hurling in from space. <laughs> exactly. So we had to wait basically until after the late heavy bombardment. So it took about a billion years, right? And Earth finally began to cool down enough. And in this time period. You know, we're cooling down because we were just born. Um, And we finally built up enough water vapor in the atmosphere that it started to rain. And that's really crazy to think that we didn't have a hydrological cycle for that long because all the water vapor was steam, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, that's uh, 
a very early that's the college years of the earth <laughs> that's right exactly partying hard up all night exactly <laughs> and so we, we get condensation for possibly the first time of water vapor right and so as you start to condense this water vapor it's kind of a runaway reaction and we get really heavy rains for basically millions of years right and that starts to do a lot of things to the atmosphere well, and the coolest, I think, is uh, you start taking these things out of the atmosphere, you start taking huge amounts of water vapor out of the atmosphere. Uh, that means the atmospheric pressure is going to become lower. Oh, man. You're I decreasing the partial of... pressure of water vapor. Yeah, I had all kinds of flashbacks to partial pressure of water vapor. <laughs> uh, homework problems when I think about this. Let's talk about thermodynamics for a little bit and uh, saturation <laughs> mixing ratios. Oh, look, man. Like, it's... <laughs> no. No, I'm going to get this beer here and forget you said those words. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah. <laughs> the atmospheric pressure becomes lower, and the rain also helps, well, sort of wash out the atmosphere. It... Remember, we talked about condensation nuclei before, and so we're getting condensation on particles in the atmosphere we're also taking out some of the volatile compounds so some of the ammonias and even some of the co2 right exactly so back then our co2 levels were the highest they've ever been and they're much higher than they were today right um way higher during this time period so we're at like what 400 ppm today and i think this was in the you know several thousands back during this time um and the presence of these high amounts of methane the co2 Kept us from freezing over like we should have with that less solar radiation, right? And um, unlike today, nitrogen wasn't the primary gas in our atmosphere. And we also didn't have a lot of oxygen, too. But this rain started to change the atmosphere to where it looks a little bit more like what it is today. But where did all this CO2 go? Well, so it started a cycle of its own. And it, <laughs> it ended up in things like the water and the rocks. Exactly. Uh, so the rocks are our biggest uh, sink of carbon today, right? And so this is a long time scale. You know, it takes millions of years to make these big rocks. But so we started to make limestones in our newly formed ocean. And that's where much of the CO2 uh, that was in the atmosphere went and is still sequestered today, actually. It's true. And so when somebody's talking to you about Earth's past climate and potentially the direction of our future climate, and they say, well, CO2 levels have been much higher in the past, you can remind them that while that's true, literally every volatile compound, including water, was a gas in the atmosphere. <laughs> right. Exactly. And the Earth was completely uninhabitable. Exactly. Uh, and it, it, just like you said, it was uninhabitable until we started to take it out of the atmosphere. And what it got inhabited by were these weird, gross things called methanogens. And they're these little single-celled organisms that love methane. And so once we put that into the water, they started to eat that up. <laughs> and finally, we could get to things like cyanobacteria. Right. So these are the guys that helped us live. Because there was actually really little amounts of oxygen in the Earth's early atmospheres, in all of their early atmospheres, which is really strange. Um, and so it wasn't until we got these photosynthetic autotrophs that were hanging out in the water that they started to take a lot more of this CO2. You know, some of it, most of it is sequestered in rocks, but a lot of it becomes used up as, um, you know, energy for photosynthesis 
and then they start to oxygenate both the ocean and the atmosphere. Exactly. So now we're sort of on to Earth's third atmosphere. Right. So we're starting to get oxygen. Nitrogen is a large component of the atmosphere. And that's because nitrogen doesn't like to react with anything, right? It hangs around forever. Um, but you still have, you know, lots of CO2 that's slowly being taken out of the system. And that third atmosphere lasted from, you know, the Proterozoic two and a half billion years ago till the start of the Phanerozoic or the Cambrian about half a billion years ago. Right. So 500 million years ago, a page in the atmospheric book, really. But <laughs> it was critical to leading to Earth's current atmosphere, the fourth iteration Atmosphere mm -hmm. Mark IV. Uh, yes. And that actually gets marked by fluctuations in gas content in the atmosphere. So before, you know, we're, we're pulling out CO2, we're changing things, we're going in basically one direction. Uh, mm -hmm. This recent atmosphere is marked by instability. Right. And, I mean, a lot of this has to do with the rise of life essentially right so earth's atmosphere is 21 percent oxygen whereas you know our neighbors mars only has 2.5 percent oxygen venus virtually has no oxygen at all actually um and so this is what just like you said is the hallmark of the fourth atmosphere so we have a lot of oxygen and co2 fluctuations mostly due to life evolving um also due to lots of large volcanic eruptions, right? We were spewing out gases at a near constant volume back in the early days of the Earth. But now we get generally, you know, huge, like the Deccan Traps comes to mind. So big volcanic outgassing episodes that start to fluctuate the amount of CO2 and other volatiles. And that has a big effect on the climate. Yeah, so pretty acute events. And you know, it was interesting when one of the large Icelandic volcanoes erupted a couple years ago. I'm not going to even try. Oh, come on. <laughs> it, it was one of the yokels. Yurka Ruffin Eiffendal or something. Yep, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> yeah, it was the one that all the news anchors saw it on their teleprompter and just said, nope. Uh, <laughs> and I really appreciated it when they tried to, though. <laughs> yes. So when it was erupting... Air traffic in that area was grounded because ingesting all of that volcanic ash was not good for jet engines with precision machined parts. Right. So they grounded all the air traffic. And still, even though the volcano is a massive source of carbon dioxide, uh, we're pumping so much into the atmosphere daily with the air traffic. It was actually a net negative flux for the atmosphere. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> So the volcano way erupting to... and grounding airplanes saved the atmosphere some CO2. Yeah, way to go, Earth. <laughs> Which before, that was one of the largest inputs of CO2 into the system. In fact, the carbon cycle is this whole thing of we sequester carbon in rocks, and then eventually that oceanic plate, there's some subduction that happens, it melts, and it gets erupted again. So that it forms a cycle. Right, but exactly. We're pumping carbon into the outgoing part of the cycle at a significant rate. Right. It's all about rates when we talk about anthropogenic climate change, right? Because even though volcanoes are really big and they erupt instantaneously, volcanic activity is, you know, on a millennial time scale, right? And it, the same thing goes for sequestering CO2 in rocks. Forming rocks are this really long-term thing, but we're releasing carbon from rocks 
you know, in seconds, massive amounts in seconds. So that that rate is unprecedented in the past. So even though carbon dioxide used to be a much larger constituent in the atmosphere, the fear is now we're pumping it so quickly that that other part of the cycle is becoming lopsided. And now we've got some dangerous feedbacks that we're probably not ready to deal with. Exactly. I mean, when you put this carbon in, we've seen what happens in the past when the atmosphere has significant amounts of greenhouse gases in it, and we're warming the climate. Right. Exactly. So while we're in an ice house, which is unusual in terms of Earth's larger scale paleoclimate, and yes, we're naturally going to come out of it, it's this lopsidedness of the carbon cycle, which is arguably the most important cycle on Earth, um, that we're really having an effect on, which I think, you know, it's become this really big political, almost religious-like thing to talk about. But I mean, this is, this is a an Earth cycle. It's been studied in the past. It's being studied and modeled for the future, just like the hydrologic cycle or the biosphere or any other cycle, right? It's just we have profound effects on it because we're making these positive feedbacks so lopsided. And that's kind of what is disturbing about this science. It's true. And, you know, saying, well, the Earth has been hotter in the past. Yes, you also didn't exist in the past. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dinosaurs used to be here too, right? So, yeah. Right. So it's, it's a very important thing to think about trying to make our planet something that will sustain life for the foreseeable future on human time scales, which in geologic time is still nothing. Yeah, exactly. Like, Earth's going to survive. Sure, it's not really about saving the Earth. It's about saving us, right? right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this is, we're not going to make this necessarily a directly climate change show, but there is overwhelming evidence that since the Industrial Revolution, we have drastically altered our climate, possibly already beyond some critical tipping point thresholds where it's hard, if not impossible, to revert some of these systems. Right, exactly. And I mean, we talk about this one thing, carbon dioxide, which is 0.03% of the atmosphere. But as we've said, as you increase it, it actually increases non-literally the amount of radiation that we can take in. And that's going to have implications for really big stuff, like how the oceans circulate, which has implications for you know, temperatures all across the world, right? So this is a all a symbiotic relationship. All these cycles work together, and that's what we're not sure of. I mean, we already said we can barely model anything because the computing power isn't there, right? So I don't even think we know what's going to happen. No, and this doesn't just affect the temperature, reduce the usable land area because of sea level rise. It's also going to do things like interrupt the food chain. Right. I mean, we have plants are, you've got C3 and C4 plants, right? So certain plants like to take up certain types of carbon and we're disrupting that. And so things that we like to eat are not going to be as prevalent as they are now. And that's not something you can engineer out overnight. Oh, no. And even things like, you know, having massive worldwide livestock and cattle operations is a huge methane flux. Right. Yeah, exactly. And in the wrong direction. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we've taken all this methane out of the atmosphere. We know what the earth used to be like back then, unlivable. 
and now we're putting it back in on these very short time scales, you know, where you can't, it takes long time scales to get it out. You know, we had millions of years of rain to clean out the methane from our atmosphere. And so in short human time scales, decadal time scales, we're pumping tons and tons back in. It, it seems like something that you would do when you were running a climate model. You'd say, let's see what happens if we really jack up the rate faster than is even reasonable. Right, exactly, which is what people do. And, you know, that's not, you said faster than reasonable, but it's like we don't know what's going to happen. So some of these things are rates that can make immediate effects. Oh, yes. No, I mean, I, I'm saying that is a, uh, it seems like an absurd amount, but that's what we're doing. Yes. Right, exactly. So it's not geologically unfeasible because we are doing it. Yes, exactly. So that uh, not only explains the faint young sun paradox, but also gives us a little bit of insight into what could potentially happen for our future. Right. And I mean, it's a great segue, actually, into our fun paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> I mean, it's not fun. Now it's all depressing. But I guess if you think the sun's going to blow up in 5 billion years, then whatever. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> this uh, this paper was sent to us by listener Daryl a little while back. And I was holding on to it, trying to figure out when we were going to work it in. And this is the perfect show to work it in. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, so this is in Environmental Research Letters. And it's kind of a long article, but... It's very interesting, and it's titled Assessing ExxonMobil's Climate Change Communications from 1977 to 2014. It's by Supran and Orsekis, and uh, they're from Harvard, and they did some very interesting sort of data mining on ExxonMobil's internal and external climate change communications, if you will. Right, and this is because ExxonMobil has been and is being investigated by multiple states, agencies, uh, one of them being uh, the New York Attorney General. So mm-hmm. Eric Schneiderman, uh, he's issued multiple subpoenas to them saying that their accounting of climate risk might be a sham. And right. every business, everything that we do has risk. There's always a risk and reward trade-off, no matter what it is. So how much fossil fuel can we burn it? What rates can we burn it to have a comfortable, sustainable lifestyle and not very negatively impact the planet? Because we do have to use resources. That's a consequence of there being as many of us as we are. Right, exactly. I still like to drive my car, so I understand the need for this. Um, But I found this really interesting because they looked at, you know, ExxonMobil's internal discussions and their internal sort of publications, they look at their peer-reviewed publications, their non-peer-reviewed publications, uh, their conference proceedings, and also their advertisements, and they tried to determine what they were saying about climate. Right, and they, okay. they make it very clear multiple times that their goal is not to say whether ExxonMobil suppressed climate change research, but... How did ExxonMobil communicate climate change research? Because they right. have been involved in climate change research. Right, exactly. So th- this paper quantifies their uh, results. So saying they're comparing 
Their specific positions on climate change is either real, human cause, serious, or solvable. And this is really interesting because it differs between their internal communications, their external communications, their peer-reviewed science, and their advertisements. Right. And so Exxon's official statement on this is, we unequivocally reject allegations that ExxonMobil suppressed climate change research contained in media reports that are inaccurate distortions of ExxonMobil's nearly 40-year history of climate research. We understand that climate risks are real. The company has continuously, publicly, and openly researched and discussed the risks of climate change, carbon life cycle analysis, and emissions reduction. So that's the official statement that we're starting from, and then they get these 187 documents. So not everything, but a decent <laughs> sample size. Right, and exactly. uh, spend a long time reading them. Uh, well, actually, this is my this is my favorite part of this paper, because that's you would that's what you would think, right? Um, but specifically, they say to characterize each document, we read its abstract, introduction, and conclusion, and either skimmed or read thoroughly the rest as necessary. <laughs> I thought that was beautiful because this is a really long paper in itself. Right. right. <laughs> and so, you know, that's what you always do. I don't know if I've ever read a scientific paper all the way through, right? Even my own. Like, you read the abstract, the intro, the conclusion. And I love that this is right there in their methods that that's what they did because it was too much to read. <laughs> right. And I mean, you don't necessarily go through the middle, the meat of it until you know the premise and the final conclusion. Then you go back and look at the supporting documents. Right, exactly. I just love that they actually stated it. Like everybody knows that's what you did, but man, they just put it right out there. Like we didn't, we didn't read this stuff. <laughs> like <laughs> that's just great. <laughs> yeah, and they also for very long documents where there were executive summaries, they just use the executive summaries. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> um. So those documents were binned into these four different categories. Um, they've got some really good tables in here too. Uh, so they had internal documents, peer-reviewed documents, non-peer-reviewed, and advertorial. Right. And then they they go through and come up with all kinds of classification systems for risk, the verbiage, uh, whether it's denial, skepticism, explaining it, all these different things. And this seems like it would be a very... Uh, subject to human interpretation way mm -hmm. to read this but much like when you grade seismograms you know you put a b c d or f most of the time it's really a b c or f right. and you think well that's horribly horribly subject to your judgment if you set a room of 20 undergraduates down looking at these which we've done in seismology labs mm -hmm. and have them grade them it's really remarkably consistent and when I was grading events for my dissertation, uh, laboratory events, I graded them and then went back like two or three weeks later and graded them again. And I had almost identical grades. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. So these authors did the same thing. They would classify these documents independently, and then they would compare. And they found very good agreement, except on a couple of documents where they had both marked it as uh, what? And they discussed those. Right, right, exactly. And I, they wind up putting these things into stuff like no position, acknowledge, acknowledge and doubt, or reasonable doubt, right? Um, and so that was really interesting that, you know, they mostly came out to the same things. And there's a big difference between these 
different uh, different groups of documents. Yeah, and they were even able to pick out some sub classifications in here. Uh, for example, documents that were skeptical or denial of climate change fell into four arguments of it's not happening, it's not us, it's not serious, or it's too hard. <laughs> that's uh, that's my favorite right there. It's too hard. Let's just ignore it. Right. <laughs> so uh, they also did some filtering because they said, well, okay, maybe before 1990, we didn't really have a good handle on human-caused or anthropogenic global warming, AGW as they cause it. So right. we're going we're gonna to give a pass on all those. We're going to exempt them. Mm-hmm. And, and so 1990 is one of the first IPCC met the International Panel on Climate Change. And they even padded this a little bit, I think, to 1995. Right, yeah. So that kicked out some of the documents. I said, we're not going to count those uh, because they are biased in the way that everybody was biased at that time right so they go through and they there's lots lots of tables and charts in here not going to go through near all of them Uh, (laughs) no but there's a really excellent one that looks like if you've ever done this it looks like dna electrophoresis so the thing where you like get this big gel and put dna in it and all these lines come up and i love this chart i don't know what you think about this but we always discuss this in papers right and so it sort of has this timeline and it's breaking these documents out and their internal peer-reviewed non-peer-reviewed and advertorials and then they're color-coded based on those things we talked about no position acknowledging acknowledging doubt reasonable doubt or doubt and i love this graphic i think it says volumes this graphic was genius. Yeah. Like... So, and it even has, I didn't think about gel electrophoresis, but it's even got more parallels to that. So in gel electrophoresis, longer chunks of DNA after you cut it up have a harder time getting through the gel so they don't make it as far. Smaller chunks, more persistent things uh, can go further through the gel. This shows the propagation of ideas, smaller things that were maybe easier to convince the public or scientific community of one way or the other, uh, made it very far in the timeline, whereas Mm -hmm. big, huge ideas like it's not happening didn't make it so far. They don't. Yep, exactly. Oh, neat. I didn't think about it that way, but that's exactly what it shows. And it does make it very easy to see if there's a big imbalance, like there's a large imbalance of red lines, which red is doubt, Mm-hmm. towards the right side of the chart, which those are all in what they called advertorials, which are paid for editorial articles in papers like the New York Times. Right. So this is really, I mean, this paper, as you said already, states, you know, we're not saying if Exxon, you know, is actually breaking the law or anything. We're just trying to present this data. And it's very clear by this color coding that the advertorials fall mostly on the reasonable doubt or doubt side of climate change, whereas most of their science and nearly all of their peer-reviewed science acknowledges that we have something to do with this anthropogenic climate change. Right, and the internal literature, so things that didn't get out, it acknowledged, but there was that reasonable doubt statement in there. Right, right, exactly. Um, There's a whole lot of graphs, just like you just said, John, about this that's 
very interesting. Um, but there's one that's, you know, it has increasingly accessible because, you know, lots of, obviously no one's going to have access to these internal documents. And a lot of people don't have access to peer-reviewed documents. They're all behind paywalls and publishing and all that jazz. Um, and even a little bit more for non-peer-reviewed documents. And then everyone has access to advertisements, right? And so as you go towards increasingly accessible, it goes towards increasingly doubtful about our role in climate change. Right. And, you know, since we were talking about graphics in this paper... <laughs> Uh, they were very well done. They're all very clear. They're very nice. They're not cluttered. The only complaint I have is almost all of them are based on red green color schemes, which Man, I knew I knew you're gonna hate that. <laughs> which hammers a massive amount of readers because red green color blindness is very common. Right, exactly. And you know, it's not exactly red green, but it's definitely in the realm of if you're red green colorblind you're not going to be able to tell the differences here no especially between red green and the adjacent shades of gray right yeah exactly so so that sucks <laughs> yeah that was the only complaint on the graphics uh <laughs> that i had yeah. <laughs> but they did a very thorough statistical analysis of these documents um and showed you know what we've exactly said that you can see from the graph clearly uh, has statistical significance so even in 1979, one of their internal studies had three bullet point conclusions, which are the increase in atmospheric CO2 is due to fossil fuel combustion. The increasing CO2 concentration will cause a warming of the Earth's surface. And the present trend of fossil fuel consumption will cause dramatic environmental effects before 2050. There you go. And this goes into the whole misleading the public thing because internally you say that in 1979 well there you go but then you have advertisements that are sort of hinting the other way right and even so in 1982 i i would say as the climate change writing was starting to be seen on the wall uh the stance shifted from an, an internal briefing to, there is currently no unambiguous scientific evidence that the Earth is warming. If the Earth is on a warming trend, we're not likely to detect it before 1995, by which time the people doing this internal briefing were probably going to be retired or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, this is, yeah, this is really interesting. Um, it talks about the author saying, you know, our best estimate is that doubling of the current concentration could increase average global temperature by about... 1.3 to 3 degrees C. Yep, that's basically happening now. I think we've gone up two or something like that. Um, so the internal documents all say that. Right. And then in these advertorials, uh, they would pull in data. So, for example, they pulled in some data from Lloyd Kegwin, who's at uh, HUI, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. And when he saw it, he said that his data was used in a very misleading way mm -hmm. and not right, representative exactly. at all of the planet as a whole which is what they were advertising it as right exactly which happens a lot in these climate debates is that a lot of these graphs get misleadingly represented either parts of them get cut off or you know they're regional trends that are represented as larger regional trends and that goes on today all the time oh yes so there's a significant amount of evidence here that, well, the 
the research was known and acknowledged internally, but it was presented in a not so honest way to the public. But only right. the general public. In the scientific literature, it was presented in a very rigorous way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is a really interesting paper, um, and I didn't really... I'm very surprised at how much the peer-reviewed science coming out of Exxon is in line with all the rest of climate science, essentially. So, you know, this was um, an interesting quantification of the data. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not going to say that this is a show to, or a fun paper to thoroughly try to bash Exxon or other energy companies. We no, need, not at all. We need the energy. Uh, mm -hmm. And they are for-profit, publicly-owned companies, so they have a you know fiduciary responsibility to make more money always. Right. Uh, but when you're publishing one thing in the peer-reviewed literature that's read by hundreds to thousands, and then you're taking that data and twisting it around and not totally talking about its implications and putting that as these advertorials in like the New York times with readership of millions to the general public. It's not the most honest practice. No. Uh -uh. And I, I'm sure that this, uh, this very fair treatment of data is going to be used when in some of these, you know, legal proceedings against Exxon. So it was very, it was a very interesting treatment of the paper or of their their internal papers especially, right? Because no one has access to those. Um, and this was a cool sort of statistical analysis. It was an interesting application of everything from language theory to statistics uh, to, to, I some, would say, even social science. Yes, and to some really good chart charting of data. <laughs> like, this was just spectacular. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you can get this fun paper... For free, it's not behind a paywall. Yep. That I know of. Nope, I clicked on it. it seemed good. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so you can get this fun paper for free. It's not behind a paywall. It's an open access paper, and have a look at some of these graphics for yourselves. If you would like to send us a fun paper to discuss your CO two readings or analysis of <laughs> advertorials, we would love to hear those. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, send those to us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, as always, we're hanging out in our Slack chat room, so you can always throw up some graphics in there and uh, have the community take a look at them. We love that. Uh, send them to us on Twitter. Together, we're at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shanna Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.